Well, good morning. Let me open us in a word of prayer, and we'll dive into Romans. Anyone have anything particularly just to praise God for this morning? Getting over COVID. Getting over COVID. More government regulations. Hallelujah. <laughs> Opportunity to obey Romans 13, right? Yeah, praise God. Uh, <laughs> Our Father in heaven, we are so thankful for your abundant grace that you've shown to us in Christ, even in the midst of trials and tribulations and government regulations, we see your providential care for us as your children, and we know that you are using all these things to shape us into the image of Christ, and we pray that you'd give us eyes to see these spiritual realities and faith to believe them and pray that you would just grow in our hearts greater love for you and desire to see your name glorified in our lives and in in the whole universe. We pray that as we just consider the book of Romans today, that you would give us eyes to see your truth and, and hearts to believe it. In Jesus' name, amen. Well, I am not Jeremy, but I'm going to do the introduction to his class since he's been on vacation this week down in San Francisco as Geraldine's beginning her testing done. So I'm going to do the introduction here, um, which is really, we're not going to actually dive into the text of Romans 8. That's going to, we're going to save that for next week. This week is, is going to be an introduction to the book. Some of you maybe came to Romans 1 through 7, so maybe this will be a little bit of review for you if you did. If you didn't, we're going to review the structure of the whole book, as well as just some of the bigger questions. You know, who wrote it? Why did he write it? from uh, who did he write it to, those kinds of things. Martin Luther said about Romans, he said, This epistle is really the chief part of the New Testament and is truly the purest gospel. It is worthy not only that every Christian should know it, word for word, by heart, but also that he should occupy himself with it every day as the daily bread of the soul. So I don't know if any of you have it memorized yet, but... um, you know, it's not as though any part of Scripture is more inspired than others. All Scripture is breathed out by God. All Scripture is useful. But it is in the book of Romans that we see the glory of God and the gospel some more clearly, I think, than uh, arguably more clearly than anywhere else in the Bible, which is why many people have, have commented similar to Luther, that the book of Romans, you see so much more clearly these truths. So... We'll start with some Bible trivia questions. How sharp you guys are this morning. Who wrote Romans? <laughs> All right. I, um, well, okay. Um, anyone want to give me the more technical answer? Uh, Tertius. Tertius, okay. Um, so, Romans 1, chapter 1, says, and I'm going to just be, if you want to have your Bibles out here, I mean, you're welcome to, I'm just going to be jumping all over as we read, as we go through some of these high-level overviews, so you're welcome to flip there with me or just listen in. But, you know, in a world today where critical scholars will just doubt just about everything about the New Testament, there's actually very few that doubt that Paul actually wrote the book of Romans. So Romans 1, verse 1, Paul, a servant of Christ Jesus, called to be an apostle, set apart for the gospel of God. So Paul Paul is the author of this book, and though he used an M, the fancy term, uh, if I can say it right, amanuensis, Romans 16.22, we read this, I, this is in the final closing to the letter, I, Tertius, who wrote this letter, greet you in the Lord. So, we're not entirely sure 
what that relationship was like between Paul and Tertius, but most likely Paul would have dictated this letter to Tertius, who maybe wrote it down in shorthand and then composed it into a full letter, which then most likely Paul reviewed and revised and edited before sending it out as a final letter. So even though you know, we, we know Paul was not, you know, there's a few times when he says, I actually am writing this with my own hand. Typically, in those days, not everyone had necessarily the skill to write out on manuscripts. And, and Paul, with his um, potentially his eyesight problems, likely wasn't actually writing a full manuscript that we have of the book of Romans. But nevertheless, we, we are right in considering him the author as the words, the meaning came from him under the inspiration of the Holy Spirit. So let's think about when he actually wrote it then. Um, Let's see. So if you turn over to the end of Romans, uh, Romans 15, I'm going to be flipping here between Romans and Acts. So if you want to turn over, you could put one finger in Romans 15 and another over around Acts 19 and 20. So Paul's third missionary journey, you might have a map like this in your Bibles, but he leaves from Antioch. Antioch was kind of his home base where he got sent out on his various missionary journeys. And he goes through Galatia, this region, strengthening the churches and visiting them. And then he goes to Ephesus, and it says that he spends two years in Ephesus. And that's actually, I think, where we find him in Acts 19. I mean, Acts 19, uh, he spends two years there. So I'm just going to, Acts 19, verse 10 says, He continued for two years teaching in the hall of Tyrannus, so that the whole, all of the residents of Asia heard the word of the Lord, both Jews and Greeks. So Paul's teaching in Ephesus, but then later, so there's this riot, well, the sons of Siva, there's that whole business, but in verse 21 it says this, Now after these events, Paul resolved in the Spirit to pass through Macedonia and Achaia and go to Jerusalem, saying, After I have been there, I must also see Rome. So, Paul's in Ephesus, he makes his plan, he's going to go to Macedonia and Achaia, these other churches like Corinth and Philippi um, that he had planted earlier. But then he says, I must also, I'm going to go to Jerusalem, and then I must also see Rome. Paul had not been to Rome before. He knew people from Rome. Anyone remember? Now, now's the real Bible trivia, the more difficult one. Anyone remember Paul's friends who came from Rome? I wouldn't have probably known this, but if you turn over a page or two, Acts, you know, Carol? Acts 18, um, this is, I think, on the, Paul's previous missionary journey. It says, the first time he was in Corinth, he found a Jew named Aquila, a native of Pontus, recently come from Italy with his wife Priscilla, because Claudius had commanded all the Jews to leave Rome. So Paul knew Priscilla and Aquila. He had ministered with them. They were from Rome. He likely knew other people from Rome, as a lot of people were traveling to and from Rome, but he himself had never been. Um, and so... He says in, when he's in Ephesus in this time, he must also see Rome. Um, so this helps us to date the, the, the book. He spends those two years in Ephesus, he, then he travels over. And really, if you go through the rest of the book of Acts, you guys remember what happens then. He's, he's visiting these churches. I don't know if you remember, he comes back. He doesn't actually go all the way up to Ephesus, but he comes to Miletus. And the elders come down and they plead with him, don't go to Jerusalem, they're going to arrest you. And he says, I'm constrained by the Spirit. He's going, he's gathering up an offering. Remember all this, the business about gathering together this financial gift that he wants to share with the believers at Jerusalem. That's, what's, that's what Paul's doing. He's headed to Jerusalem to, to deliver this gift. So that's what, 
it's most likely when we put together some of the, I'll get into some of the evidence, but most likely it's when Paul is in Corinth on this journey after he's been in Ephesus for two years. He travels through Macedonia, Corinth, Philippi, Thessalonica, gathering together this financial gift that he's then going to take to Jerusalem. It's most likely that while he, it's while he's in Corinth that he writes the letter of Romans. So this would put it um, between A.D. 55 and 58. So I want to just take a moment and kind of follow the chronology here. If you turn over to, um, in Romans 15, Paul is now, so he's on his third missionary journey. He's been through all this region here, right? He's he's planted churches, appointed elders in this whole region, sent out from Antioch. And he writes this to the Christians in Rome, in uh, Romans 15, 19. He says, um, well, picking up in 18, I will not venture to speak of anything except what Christ has accomplished through me to bring the Gentiles to obedience by word and deed, by the power of signs and wonders, by the power of the Spirit of God, so that from Jerusalem and all the way around to Illyricum, I have fulfilled the ministry of the gospel of Christ. So Jerusalem, way over here. Um, Illyricum, I had to look it up. I didn't. It's not on the map listed here, but um, it's basically this area over here, like the far end of Macedonia, what would be modern-day Albania, not far from where um, the Shrums went. I think they were up in this area. What's the name of the country you went to? Montenegro. Montenegro. Yeah, Montenegro is up here. Albania is right here. This this region over here was called Illyricum. So Paul's saying, from Jerusalem all the way to Illyricum, I have fulfilled the ministry of the gospel of Christ, which. Well, we'll read on and see. I mean, he says, Thus I make it my ambition to preach the gospel, not where Christ has already been named, lest I build on someone else's foundation. But as it is written, those who have never been told of him will see, and those who have never heard will understand. So Paul says he's fulfilled his ministry in this entire region. Not meaning, obviously, that everyone was saved, or even that every person in that region had heard the gospel, but that Paul as a, had a unique calling as an apostle to the Gentiles, and he had traveled through this whole region and planted churches, not in every city, but in, in all of the key cultural centers. Um, he had traveled to those places, he'd planted churches, and now there were believers in those regions who could multiply those churches and continue to spread the gospel. And so, Paul says... His ministry, his goal was not to build on someone else's foundation, and so there's no more room for him to work in this region. And so he wants to go to Rome, which is off the map here. You know, Italy's right over here. Um, so that's, that's his desire um, to go visit the believers in Rome. So continue now in verse 22. He says, This is the reason why I have so often been hindered from coming to you. But now, since I no longer have any room for work in these regions, and since I have longed for many years to come to you, I hope to see you in passing as I go to Spain and to be helped on my journey there by you once I have enjoyed your company for a while. So I've heard it said that Romans is the longest, most theologically dense missionary support letter. Uh, Paul is... You know, he's planning, he's, he's trying to get to Rome to visit them, but you see his plan was not actually to get to Rome and to stop in Rome. He wants to go beyond Rome to Spain, which is even further off to the west. Hopefully you know your European, European geography a little bit. And he wants to be helped by them along the way. So, and this is, we're going to get into this later, but this is part of why we're seeing he actually, some, 
part of why he wrote this letter. He hoped to stop in Rome on the way to Spain as he continues his ministry of taking the gospel to places where it had never been uh, and to, to plant churches and put to, among people who had never heard. I'm going to jump over to chapter 1. I'm going to come back to 15, though, in a second, so keep your finger there. But in Romans 1, we hear the same thing in kind of his opening address to the believers. Um, Starting in verse 8, I thank my God through Jesus Christ for all of you. Your faith is proclaimed in all the world. Remember, So he doesn't know these. He hasn't been to Rome, but he's heard. And many people are reporting about the, the church in Rome, and it's being proclaimed in all the world. God is my spirit. Verse 9, God is my witness, whom I serve with my spirit in the gospel of, of his Son, that without ceasing I mention you always in my prayers, asking that somehow by God's will I, might, I may now at last succeed in coming to you. We can note the irony. We'll get into this a little bit more. But if you know the circumstances that God, by God's will, Paul ended up coming to Rome, it was not what Paul expected. We'll see that in a second. He says, I long to see you, that I may impart to you some spiritual gift to strengthen you. That is, that we may be mutually encouraged by each other's faith, both yours and mine. I want you to know, brothers, that I have often intended to come to you, but thus far have been prevented, in order that I may reap some harvest among you, as well as among the rest of the Gentiles. I am under obligation both to Greeks and to barbarians, both to the wise and to the foolish. So I am eager to preach the gospel to you also who are in Rome. So Paul is planning to, you know, he's, he knows he's going to go to Jerusalem to deliver this gift, but he wants his next stop to be Rome on en route to Spain. Now, th- those are the circumstances of Paul's, what Paul's at, where he's at as he's planning to go to Rome. But I thought it would be instructive for us, just take a moment. It's actually, there's some helpful lessons here to reflect on as we see how Paul actually ends up in Rome and what this means for our lives today. So turn back to Romans 15. Paul's wanting to go to Rome. He's praying that by God's will, he would be able to go there. Um, And back in Romans 15, he says, verse 25, at present, however, I'm going to Jerusalem, bringing aid to the saints. So he's traveling around, gathering the money, going to Jerusalem to, to the saints there. Verse 26, Macedonia and Achaia. This is one of the reasons why we think he's most likely in Corinth at the time, because he's in this region here, Macedonia and Achaia. They're the ones who have been contributing to the offering that he's going to take to the saints in Jerusalem. Macedonia and Achaia have been pleased to make some contribution for the poor among the saints at Jerusalem. They were pleased to do it, and indeed they owe it to them, for if the Gentiles have come to share in their spiritual blessings, they ought also to be of service to them in material blessings. When therefore I have completed this, and have delivered to them what has been collected, I will leave for Spain by way of you. I know that when I come to you, I will come in the fullness of the blessing of Christ." And then he asks for prayer for him to be able to come visit them. He says, I appeal to you, brothers, by our Lord Jesus Christ and by the love of the Spirit to strive together with me in your prayers to God on my behalf, that I may be delivered from the unbelievers in Judea and that my service for Jerusalem may be acceptable to the saints so that by God's will I may come to you with joy and be refreshed in your company. Now, What's Paul asking for in prayer there? There was a couple things that he asked them to pray for as he's anticipating you know, his travel to Jerusalem and then coming to visit them. They're not hard questions, but I just want to make sure you're awake. 
So, yep, he prays that he would they would be he would be delivered from the unbelievers in Judea. Um, what else? That the church in Jerusalem would accept and. Yep, they would accept his gifts. And then in verse 32, so that by God's will I may come to you with joy and be refreshed in your company. So that's Paul's prayer. Now we know Paul wrote this under the inspiration of the Holy Spirit, but we also know Paul is not omniscient. If you go over to Acts, just as a reminder, maybe you already already remember this, but let's just see how this all plays out. Acts 19, we saw he was in Ephesus, he was planning to go to Rome, he goes through Macedonia and Greece in, in Acts 20, and actually in Acts 20, is, we see the brief mention of when he's actually in Corinth, likely when he wrote the book of Romans, uh, in Acts 20 verse 1, it says, after the uproar ceased, Paul sent for the disciples, this was an uproar at Ephesus, and after encouraging them, he said farewell and departed for Macedonia. When he had gone through those regions and had given them much encouragement, he came to Greece. There he spent three months, and when a plot was made against him by the Jews, as he was about to set sail for Syria, he decided to return through Macedonia. This is why um, his return voyage, you'll see actually, he was, gonna, he was just going to sail, but he decides to go around through Macedonia. He travels around, and if you read on, you can see each of the places he stops, and that's how we've reconstructed that trip, return voyage, um, for him on his way to Jerusalem. Acts 21, now he's to Jerusalem. Remember, he's been praying that he would be delivered from the unbelievers, and that he would then be able to travel to Rome. What happens in Acts 21? He goes up to Jerusalem, he brings them the gift, and he... He visits the disciples, uh, verse twenty, verse four. Having sought out the disciples, we stayed there for seven days. Well, that, actually, that's on his way to Jerusalem still. Um, verse twenty seventeen. When they came to Jerusalem, the brothers received us gladly. Um, he related to them what God has been doing among the Gentiles. When they heard it, they glorified God. So so far so good. But then uh, verse twenty seven. When the seven days, so he does this um, ritual purification with the Jews, and it says, When the seven days were almost completed, the Jews from Asia, seeing him in the temple, stirred up the whole crowd and laid hands on him. And if you read on, uh, really the rest of the book of Acts is a story of Paul being not delivered from the unbelievers in Judea, but arrested by the unbelievers in Judea, put in prison. And then you see, you know, the next six, seven chapters are just this saga of one unfair trial after another, the Jews are, uh, the Romans actually deliver him, in a sense, from the unbelievers. And so it is a, a answer to his prayer, but I'm sure not the one he expected. The Jews are going to kill him. The, the Romans come in and deliver him, put him in prison, keep him safe from the riotous Jews. And then the Jews continue to hurl accusations against him. The Jews um, plan to kill him. You know, Mark, if you remember, hears about that plot on his life, and the the Romans then decide to ferret him away to, um, I think, Caesarea. And there he's in prison before Felix. He testifies before Felix. Um, And then Felix, he transitions to another role, and he leaves Paul in prison, so he's there for two more years. And then this is on Acts 24 now. You know, Felix is succeeded by this guy named Festus, and again, Paul has to make these... these, um, Defenses before Festus and then Agrippa, and then he, the Jews come up before him and and are going to again condemn him, and so he appeals to Caesar, and therefore after all of that, 
he ends up getting his ship voyage to Rome, which is shipwrecked, by the way. And uh, he lands on Malta, he gets out, and this is where the serpent comes out and bites him on the wrist. Everyone's like, this guy must be a murderer. He escapes the sea, and now he's bitten by a serpent. After all that, he arrives at Rome. So, in answer to Paul's prayer, Paul said in Romans 1, I think it was Romans 1, Verse 10, he's always in his prayer asking that somehow, by God's will, I may now at last succeed in coming to you. This was God's will for how Paul would succeed in coming to Rome. Through being thrown in prison, being almost killed, being um, falsely accused several times, being forgotten in prison for several years, finally appealing to Caesar, going there, being shipwrecked, and all of this. So, just in light of that, I thought it was ref- it would be helpful just to reflect as we're thinking about more introductory matters now and we're not necessarily diving into the text itself today. What can we learn from just reflecting on the circumstances here surrounding Paul's desire to go to Rome, his writing this letter, and then the actual playing out of God's providence in his life? Oh, that's time. Yeah. Yeah, I, I thought of two, at least two things that, um, I mean, the first, I think, is just in the, regarding um, the missionary advance in general. Remember the whole point of the book of Acts? What was, what's the thesis statement of the book of Acts? You remember? Jerusalem, Judea, and Samaria. Yep, Acts 1.8. You will be my witnesses in Jerusalem and Judea and Samaria and to the ends of the earth. Well, Acts 28, Paul ends up at the ends of the earth in Rome to bear witness to the gospel, to the truths about the resurrection. That's where the very last verse, or the last two verses, Acts 28, 30, 31 is where the book ends. He doesn't, we don't actually hear in this book about whether he made it to Spain. Scripture doesn't tell us that, although tradition is that, church tradition has told us that he did. But in Acts 28, 30-31, he lived there two whole years at his own expense, this is in Rome, and welcomed all who came to him, proclaiming the kingdom of God and teaching about the Lord Jesus Christ with all boldness and without hindrance. So we see God has providentially seen to it that the gospel would make it to the ends of the earth. Remember how it first made it out of Jerusalem and Judea? Acts chapter 8. Persecution. In Acts chapter 8, verse 1, it says, Saul, this is when Stephen was, was stoned. It says, There arose on that day a great persecution against the church, and they were all scattered throughout the regions of Judea and Samaria. So the gospel is to go from Jerusalem to Judea and Samaria, and then to the ends of the earth. And God sees to it that the gospel makes it to those places, but not in the way that you would expect. And in ways, actually, that almost... Uh, seem counterintuitive. You see people being persecuted and suffering, getting thrown in prison, um, shipwrecked, all of this, and yet God is like the master chess player, working all of these unexpected events into his wise purposes to take the gospel to the ends of the earth. So there's application to us personally as well, but as a word of caution, when you see missionary agencies, organizations that have Ambitious plans, like we're going to reach all of the nations by 2030 or 2050. You know, they, they set a goal, they have a timetable, we're going we're gonna to accomplish the Great Commission in this generation. It seems like every 10 or 20 years, there's a new slogan. You know, there's, there's this, we're going to accelerate the, the progress of the gospel. And 
What inevitably happens in all of those cases is we, there ends up being man-made timetables and then man-made methods in order to accelerate the process, and it oftentimes results in compromise, in unbiblical methods. And we see from the book of Acts that God, God has infinite ways that he can accomplish his great... He can use shipwrecks, he can use arrests, he can use... Um, you know, Paul appealing to Caesar, persecution, stoning of Stephen, all of these things. So yes, we do need to make set goals, but uh, we need to remember that God's, God's going to providentially work all things to accomplish his purposes. And we are not the ones to set the timetable or, or tell God how it's going to happen. But more generally, what can we learn from just these circumstances surrounding Paul visiting Rome? Yeah. And God may answer our prayers in ways that we do not expect. You, know, you may be praying for God to increase your faith, and then you may get cancer. And yes, He's going to increase your faith, um, but He may use cancer to do it. Or, you know, I get myriad other ways that God will graciously and wisely answer your prayers, but in Paul's case, he prayed to be delivered from the Jews in Judea, and in a sense, God did do that. He delivered him from them, but he, you know, threw him into prison, and he spent years waiting and ship, being shipwrecked and all that. So, all that to say, um, as you're even now, maybe you know, wondering why isn't God answering my prayer? Why is it not turning out the way that I wanted it to? Just take comfort in that that God's able to turn evil to good, uh, use it for good purposes, and accomplish things that you cannot even imagine. What you don't know is who God wants you to impact, right? So I'm going to use kind of a, a strange subject for people. But during COVID, you can't imagine how many people were in great duress. And so those of us that were Christians working in COVID at the health department, we were able to minister to them in ways that I never would have. <clears throat> the new employees, you know, people on the phone. Yeah. That would have never happened. Right. So... God uses interesting things for Yeah. Yeah. Any other questions or comments on those circumstances? Or Alright, so Paul did end up going to Rome, um, but as a prisoner. So, what do we know about the church now in Rome? Well, uh, Romans 1.7 says that um, Paul's writing, he says, to all those in Rome who are loved by God and called to be saints, grace to you and peace from God our Father and the Lord Jesus Christ. Now, we don't actually know a whole lot about how the church began there in Rome. Paul didn't plant it. He, here he is, you know, writing to go visit them, but he hasn't been there yet, so he wasn't the, the founding um, apostle of that church. We do know that there were Jews at in Acts chapter 2, there were visitors from Rome who came to Jerusalem for Pentecost. Uh, Acts chapter 2, um, it says, this is when Peter gives his sermon at Pentecost, and the Holy Spirit is poured out on the disciples. Um, and he's, they spoke in, in tongues, and everyone, all the visitors heard them speaking in their own language, and it says, in Acts 2, verse 8, we all hear, how is it that we hear, each of us in his own native language, Parthians, Medes, Elamites, residents of Mesopotamia, Judea, Cappadocia, Pontus, Asia, Phrygia, Pamphylia, Egypt, 
parts of Libya belonging to Cyrene and visitors from Rome, both Jews and proselytes, Cretans and Arabians. We hear them telling in our own tongue the mighty works of God. So it's scholars speculate that those who visited from Rome in Acts chapter 2 potentially were saved through Peter's preaching and went back and, and started a church in Rome. Um, most likely it was a mix, it consisted of multiple house churches, and most likely it was a mixture of Jews and Gentiles. We saw, um, you know, in Acts 18, Claudius had expelled the Jews. There's actually some interesting historical records. Uh, you know, uh, Roman historians that said that Claudius was getting frustrated because uh, these Jews and Christians who couldn't agree on the identity of some man they called Christ. So apparently he was frustrated about this. Some, what he viewed as just like an internal religious debate about you know about Jesus, who you know the Jews who were not you know the Jews who were not believers in Christ were denying that he was the Messiah and the Christians weren't. And, you know, as a result, Claudius just said, you know, enough of it. And he expelled all the Jews from Rome. Um, So that was AD 49. Um, It's probably not true that every single Jew left, but a lot of the more prominent ones were forced to leave, like Priscilla and Aquila. Um, But then in the years years after that, like in probably in the mid-50s, they probably started um, traveling back. So, but at least for a little, for a while there, the church would have probably been pre- predominantly Gentiles because most of the Jews had left, and now the, the Jews are coming back in the fifties. So this is why, even in some of the internal evidence, you can see, you know, it's written. It's certainly written to address concerns that Jews would have, but also written to speak to Gentiles about how they would deal with with Jewish questions and Jewish believers that are maybe coming back from being sent away and now coming back um, into the churches. So, for example, in chapter 11, remember he says this, the analogy of the olive branch and saying, uh, he says, I'm speaking to you Gentiles in 11.13 because he's an apostle to the Gentiles. And he says, if some branches were broken off because of their unbelief, although you, a wild olive shoot, were grafted in, um, you know, don't be arrogant towards those branches. So little things like that indicate he's probably, the churches there were probably predominantly Gentile, or at least had a strong, a strong um, Gentile presence. And yet, you know, you know from the letter, he's talking about, he's using the Old Testament all the time. He's talking about the law. He's talking about the, the place of Israel. And so uh, that's why scholars believe it's probably a mixture. Uh, even the Gentiles that are there probably have a strong Jewish um, background, or at least have, are familiar with the Old Testament scriptures. All right, that's the we. So there's not a whole lot that we know about the church, but that's that's you know a lot of it's like it's like playing telephone or uh, listening to half of a phone conversation. That's really you know what the epistles are. They're they're re, you know real letters that were written in time, but you know we don't get the other side of the conversation. So you know we try to reconstruct as best we can our understanding of the recipients from what Paul does say to them. Let's see. So, Paul takes a lot of time, obviously, in this book to explain his doctrine, a lot more than he does in any other book. He gives what I would call a thesis statement in Romans 1, 16 and 17. If you were in the first part of the class, I'm 
sure you remember that. But right after he tells them that he's eager to preach the gospel to them at Rome, he says, For I am not ashamed of the gospel, for it is the power of God for salvation to everyone who believes, to the Jew first and also to the Greek. For in it, that is in the gospel, the righteousness of God is revealed from faith for faith. As it is written, the righteous shall live by faith. And this, actually these verses, Martin Luther, it was these verses that caused him to eventually spark the Protestant Reformation. But it was questioning these verses and wondering, how is it that the righteousness of God is good news for believers? How is it, you know, if God is righteous, and he knew from his own conscience, what we all know, is that we don't live up to God's righteous standards. We, if the righteousness of God is revealed in the gospel, then the gospel must be bad news because it must just bring condemnation to me because I, I know that I can't live up to God's righteous standards. That, that's what the weight of what Martin Luther was under as he was wrestling with these exact te- these texts, or this, these verses. And it was those, um, that quote from Habakkuk 2.4, where it says, As it is written, the righteous shall live by faith. And eventually, as he wrestled with his text, the light came on, and he realized that that, that verse is what it's saying, is that we become righteous not by living up to God's standards, but by faith in Christ, as Paul would unpack in the, in the following chapters, that it's, it's by faith that we're made righteous, and it's by faith that we live. That's, um, this is the, the path to eternal life and blessing in God, uh, and relationship with God is faith, not works of the law. So those verses become a thesis statement that Paul is going to continue to unpack and develop for the rest of the book. And you might remember the diatribe function or feature that um, Paul engages in. If you go through the whole book, I listed out, I don't know, well, Jeremy helped list it out. He, he helped me with some of these slides. But, um, um, you know, 10 or 12 places where he's asking questions now of, of a Hypothetical question that he, he anticipates someone might have. You know, 3.1, what advantage has the Jew? What is the value of circumcision? 3.9, what then? Are we Jews any better off? And, and so on. He uses these, um, this question and answer method to advance his um, argument. So, why, I'm going to, uh, you can wake up now for a second and think about this. Um, why did Paul write Romans? We know he's planning to visit them and go on his mission to Spain. Um, I told you that's like the main point there, Romans 1.16, but why did he write the book? So Martin Luther could start the Reformation? So we could have a book, yeah. yeah. <laughs> <laughs> Jesus said God told him to. God told him to, yeah. Jesus. <laughs> well, I have three answers that I'm looking I mean, three answers that I, th- I mean, scholars will um, probably would, would postulate other things, but I think there's at least three things that we can say confidently. But I'm going to let you guys, I'm just going to wait you out because I've been talking for a while. Well, if you think uh, of like Romans 11, right? Yeah, for, go ahead. No, no. I was going to say, chapter 16, verse 17, appeal to you, brothers, to watch out for those that cause division and create obstacles contrary to the doctrine of the thought. Avoid them for such persons. Do not serve our Lord Christ for appetite. We wrote it to uh, ensure that the future stay true to the teachings of Christ. Yeah. Amen. I think you 
I think that's the first thing I said. Um, unless my screen's broken. Okay. To unify the church. Which I didn't even think of Romans 16, 17, but that's exactly what he's saying there. Watch out for those who cause divisions uh, and create obstacles contrary to the doctrine that, doctrine that you've been, in ta- been taught. So, knowing that he's got a strong Gentile presence, but now Jews who have been dispersed are now coming back. He knows there's, you know, he's, he's been around the block before. He knows this whole question of Jews and Gentiles living together in one body is going to result in questions. What are some of the questions that Jews and Gentiles would have dealt with? What's the role of the law in our lives? Is the law worthless? Is the law, if the law is such a bad thing, then why do we even have it? You know, the, he talks about all these things in Romans. What else? What other kinds of questions would Jews and Gentiles have dealt with? The inheritance, God's <laughs> inheritance for the Jews. Right, God's promises to the Jews. You know, Romans nine through eleven, which is what we're going to uh, one of the big sections of this second half of the class uh, deals with that question. What about what about God's promises to the Jews? Have they failed? Have the promises to Israel failed? I'm also remember in Romans fourteen. There's this question about like, can we eat meat or not, and uh, how do we help? How do we live with those who have, whose consciences don't allow them to eat meat? Um, and that would have been a, a hot item for a Jewish, a mixed Jewish Gentile congregation. So, Scott, uh, yeah, to unify the churches, I think, is to help the church work through these questions and remain unified in the gospel. Was I think one of his main purposes. What else? Our response to God should be worship. If you look at the end of chapter 11 and the beginning of chapter 12, which is kind of like, you know, through chapter 11 is kind of laying out all the gospel and stuff. And to the glory of God, therefore be transformed by the renewing of your mind. It kind of, right. Our, our response is worship. Right. That was my third reason, so um, uh, <laughs> I'll get to that in a second. Um, the second one is one that we've already talked about. Maybe it's so obvious that you don't feel like saying it, or maybe... I don't know why, but um, the second one is just that you know he's this is a church that he's never met. Um, he's, he knows some people there, but his goal is that he would come visit them and that they would actually help him. Meaning, like you know, send him on his way, give him lodging, maybe help him financially, send him on his way on route to Spain. So he wants to, in a sense, introduce himself to them and assure them of the gospel that he preaches, so that they would. They no doubt had heard rumors, you know, circulating this Jew, this Paul guy. You know, if you remember, he came back to Jerusalem, and they said, you know, he tells us not to follow Moses, and you know, he he doesn't believe in the law. Like, no doubt, rumors circulated about this, you know, uh, revolutionary Paul figure. So he wants to introduce himself to the church so that they could actually hear what he teaches from his own pen, and then they would help him on his way to his trip to Spain. Thirdly, I said, and this is where Adam helped us out, ultimately even these two purposes, unifying the church and helping him on his trip to, his missions trip to Spain, are gathered under this, his main purpose, to bring glory to God through the obedience of faith of the nations. So, that phrase, obedience of faith, I'd just like to, uh, if someone can turn to Romans 1, 5 through 6, and someone else, Romans 16, 25 to 27. Um, you can see, you know, oftentimes just as a, you know, a clue if you're thinking about like 
the purpose of a book or what the author's intention is. You can oftentimes you can pick it up either at the beginning or the end, and in this case, both. But can someone read Romans 1, 5, and 6? Through him and for his name's sake we received grace and apostleship to call people from among all the Gentiles to the obedience that comes faith. And you also are among those who are called to belong to Jesus Christ. Right. Thanks, Michael. So, my and ESV says to bring about the obedience of faith, which I think your version. Which one? Do, which version do you have? NIV. NIV says it's the obedience that comes from faith, but that and this is among the Gentiles for the sake of His name. His goal, His whole ministry, is to bring about the obedience of faith among the Gentiles for the sake of God's name, for the sake of. God's worship for His glory. What about sixteen twenty-five to 27? Can someone read that? Now to Him who is able to strengthen you according to my gospel and the preaching of Jesus Christ according to the revelation of the mystery that was kept secret for long ages, but has now been disclosed and through the prophetic writings has been made known to all nations according to the command of the eternal God to bring about the obedience of faith to, to the only wise God be glory forever through Jesus Christ. Amen. So again, you hear that same phrase, to bring about the obedience of faith, according to the command of the eternal God to bring about the obedience of faith. This was one of the purposes that he wrote this book. And then in verse 27, to the only wise God be glory forevermore through Jesus Christ. So that as the gospel spreads to the church in Rome and beyond, as Gentiles who were previously living according to the passions of their flesh, however they saw fit, become to worship and glorify God, that it would their obedience and their faith would result in praise and glory to God. Which is what uh, Romans 11, you know, at this seam in, Romans 11 is a seam in the book between uh, this heavy doctrinal section to a transition into a practical exhortations to the church. And you see that, what Adam mentioned, Romans 11, 33 to 36 uh, he says, Oh, the depth of the riches and wisdom and knowledge of God! How unsearchable are His judgments! How inscrutable His ways! For who has known the mind of the Lord? Or who has been His counselor? Or who has been given a gift to Him that He might be repaid? For from Him and through Him and to Him are all things. To Him be glory forever. Amen. I think it's helpful just to keep that this third purpose in mind because especially... I mean, there are many things, you know, as, as Peter said, there's some things in Paul that are hard to understand, um, which the ignorant and unstable twist to their own purposes. As you go through Romans uh, over these next, you know, I forget how many weeks, 15 weeks, there's some things in here that are hard to understand, that even you'll find the best evangelical scholars who are deeply committed to the inspiration of Scripture will disagree about what exactly Paul meant by this mention of Israel or that mention of the law and how that works out. And so even when it can be easy then at those times to either get so caught up in the minutiae of the arguments that you lose sight of the big picture or even just to you know, kind of throw up your hands and, and not even try to understand it. But keeping in mind this purpose that this all is to drive us to worship, that we are to come away from reading the book of Romans and studying it with a greater appreciation of God's glory and a, a greater love for his, his name. It doesn't mean that we solve all the, all the problems, but um, it does mean it puts them in a different light. Like Paul didn't necessarily write, this wasn't supposed to be like a systematic theology textbook that gives us 
you know, detailed answers to every theological question. Um, that wasn't his purpose in writing. But it is that we would catch a vision of this great God and his working to gather the, to gather the nations and to justify them by faith so that we also would praise him and glorify him. I put up there Romans 15, 7 through 9. This is just another case where you see the same, the same thrust in Paul's writing. He says, this is at the end of this whole section about um, how they are to accept one another and live in unity between each other, even when they disagree about things like whether they can eat meat or not. He says, therefore, welcome one another as Christ has welcomed you for the glory of God. Even how they live out their Christian life, Paul wants them to see, is for the glory of God. For I tell you, verse 8, that Christ became a servant to the circumcised to show God's truthfulness in order to confirm the promises given to the patriarchs and in order that the Gentiles might glorify God for his mercy. So even in the, the practical matters of what, how their body life is worked out, as they work for unity, it's for the glory of God. Any questions about those purposes, or anyone want to add another? There may be other purposes that Paul and or the Holy Spirit intended. Certainly, I guess another purpose is just so that we would be edified in reading it, but anyone have any questions on those? I've got, a, I've got about 10 minutes left, and I have a couple more slides. Just to give you a big picture overview of the book, where we've where we've been and where we're going. I have this up here. I'm gonna I'll walk through this relatively quickly for the sake of time. But um, you know we're we're right here in a seam. I didn't have a chance to give Jeremy a hard time about this. I don't know. I mean, I'm sure it was just the way the the weeks worked out. But Romans, you know, the end of seven, the beginning of eight is like right in the middle of this climactic uh, question and argument. And you know, if you when we're in the first class, you've been waiting for, what, a year to, to get the answer? <laughs> so, but um, we begin with, in chapter 1, the gospel is the revelation of God's righteousness. A lot of this is introductory information, but I saw that theme statement, the thesis statement, the gospel of God's righteousness, the gospel that reveals God's righteousness, he said in, in 117. And we'll see different ways that God's righteousness is revealed in the gospel. And the first thing he, he highlights is God's righteousness in his wrath against sinners. So that, that section 118 through 320, if you remember, is all, um, the, it's about the wrath of God being revealed against ungodliness and unrighteousness of men. So he talks about the Gentiles who do not know God, who do not worship God or give him glory. And then he turns it around on the Jews and says, you know, you're no better off, O oh Jew, you who pride yourself in keeping the law and, and in your obedience and your heritage, that you also are unrighteous. In fact, uh, Romans 3, 9 through 20, all are unrighteous. All, there is none who does good, no one who understands, no one seeks for God. And the end of that section, he says that so that every mouth may be stopped and the whole world may be held accountable to God. So that's this first um, section highlighting that God is righteous to actually judge the, the nations because of their wickedness. This is, this is where Martin Luther was wrestling. How, you know, how can this actually be good news if um, we don't keep God's righteous standards? And then 321 is a, is a marvelous 
burst of light on the scene. Um, But now the righteousness of God has been manifested apart from the law. It's not by keeping the law. It's not by doing all the right things. It's the righteousness of God, 322, through faith in Jesus Christ for all who believe. For all have sinned and fall short of the glory of God and are justified by His grace as a gift through the redemption that is in Christ Jesus. And that whole section 321 through 31 is really a, a very rich unpacking of Romans 1, 16 and 17, just explaining how this actually works, that we could be righteous by faith, that it, it is actually a gift from God. So, And it doesn't impugn, God doesn't just wipe away our, our sins and forget about them. He does it in such a way, Romans 3.26, so that he can be just, and just and righteous are, are like the same word group in the original Greek. Um, so he could be righteous. His own righteousness is vindicated, and he can justify the ungodly. He can justify sinners. The same thing that in the Old Testament, Proverbs 17 says, you know, it's an abomination to justify the ungodly. You shouldn't, you know, if a human judge justifies the ungodly, you say that's, that's a travesty of justice. Why? You can't do that. You can't let the wicked get off. You've got to, you've got to punish them. But God in His righteousness, you know, 326, it was to show His righteousness. Remember, the gospel reveals God's righteousness. Well, this is how it reveals God's righteousness. He can be righteous in receiving the full penalty for sin, and yet at the same time, He can count sinners righteous, who those who have faith in Jesus. So that's a high point in just that developing that thought. Um, Romans 3, 21 to 31, Rome, uh, chapter 4. Then he goes through the Old Testament and looks at the examples of Abraham and David to show that this actually isn't some new doctrine that he's teaching. It's not that he just got some new revelation that is um, changing the way that God works. This is actually the way it's always worked. He quotes, um, you know, remember Abraham, Genesis fifteen six that his faith was counted to him as righteousness. So going all the way back to Genesis 15, this is the way God has always worked in in history. Those who come to him in faith um, are counted righteous. So then we get into this middle section, which is where we're going to pick up next week when Jeremy picks up in Romans 8, verse 1. But Romans 5, 1 says, Therefore, since we have been justified by faith. So he's, he's transitioning from Having made that argument, we're justified by faith. So now, as a result of that, what is true for us as as Christians? And he goes through um, the hope that we have um, of glory in Romans 5, um, that we have peace with God and that we rejoice in the hope of the glory of God. Um, He goes through in Romans 6 how that we actually have new resurrection life in us even now that we are our standing with God is assured but now we have or called to consider ourselves dead to sin and alive to God that we're called to walk as servants as slaves of righteousness as we have a standing with God but now we're called to live that out that's Romans 6 Romans 7 and 8 are now dealing with this question of um, what's the place of the law in our lives? Was the law a mistake? Was the law sinful? Was the law wrong? And he, he says, Romans 7, 7, the, was the law sin? By no means. Um, the, the problem was not with the law. The problem was with our own sinful 
hearts that when we heard the commandments, they produced sin. Our, our sinful flesh produced sinful actions as we heard God's um, righteous commands. And this is where we're going to pick up in Romans chapter 8, verse 1, which is really, you know, Romans 8, 1 starts, there is therefore now no condemnation for those who are in Christ Jesus. You know, the therefore, he's building off this tension throughout Romans 7 of, you know, what are we to do with this wickedness that still lives in us? And how do we walk in newness of life? You know, Romans 7, verse 6, it says, We are released from the law, having died to that which held us captive, so that we serve not under the old written code, but in the new life of the Spirit. So we're not under the law anymore. Now we've been given new life in the Spirit. And, and then he shows how that works in chapter 8. He, chapter 8 unpacks what this means to walk by the Spirit and how we can walk without condemnation. So, it's interesting, actually, 5 and 8 kind of hit some of the same notes. And um, so it's, I think that's one reason why it makes sense that 5 and 8 are actually one one section. He starts off in chapter 5 talking about the hope we have of the glory of God. We rejoice in the hope of the glory of God. And then in, in chapter 8, he comes back to that. Creation itself is in bondage to decay. This is, my, I think, my favorite section of all of Scripture, Romans eight eighteen through um, 39. What shall we say to these things? If God is for us, who can be against us? He, didn't, he who did not spare his own son, but gave him up for us all, how will he not also with him graciously give us all things? But in the midst of that, there's tribulation and distress and persecution and famine and nakedness and danger and sword. But all those things will not separate us from the love of Christ. So in the midst of, you know, Romans 5, it says we rejoice in the hope of the glory of God and we rejoice in our tribulations. Tribulation produces perseverance. Perseverance produces character. Character produces hope. And now Romans 8, again, he returns to that same theme. We're going to, be, we're going to suffer uh, at the present time, but there is a glory coming that is not worth comparing to the sufferings of this time. So, that's section 5 through 8. Romans 9 is a bit of a trans, transition. We'll get see Romans 9 through 11 is really a unit addressing, because this is a mixed crowd of Jews and Gentiles, addressing some of these questions about the role of Israel. Um, what about the promises to Israel? Has God's promises to Israel failed? Um, what about the remnant of God's people? And then 12 and 13 are dealing with questions actually very pertinent to them and to us, um, about how we work out our Christian life. Um, God's righteousness now produced in us things like, what do we do with oppressive government uh, rulers and regulations? And other things, um, you know, a variety of things that are just, you know, Romans 12 is just like a, a shotgun love of uh, exhortations that show us how far we fall of of actually living out this life. But yet we have the power of the Spirit so that we don't do this out of condemnation. But um, we're called to not be slothful in zeal, be fervent, serve the Lord, rejoice in hope, be patient in tribulation, and, and so on. Um, and then we get to the end of the book and what well, we've already been over, Romans 15 and 16. Paul's writing to them about his desire to fulfill his mission through coming to them and then going on to Spain. And then he lists out lengthy um, greeting section, Romans 16, 1 through 23, a variety of people that he either knew of or knew personally who are now in Rome, and he writes greetings to them. So, And then he closes with a doxology. So there you go. That's the 
you know, 10 minute book of Romans, um, in Ben's words. Actually, I, I should give credit where credit's due. This um, structure is not my structure. Um, it came from a Tom Schreiner commentary. So um, he's the one who, who I use all these, these headings and, and sections from. So any questions before we close in prayer? All right, let me pray. Our Father in heaven, we thank you so much for the good news that you've given to us in your Son, Jesus Christ, and the way that we see it so clearly and powerfully and persuasively in the book of Romans, how we hear in in your word that you are working even our tribulations and our sufferings to produce glory for us that is far beyond all compare pray that you would give us eyes to see these truths and hearts to believe it and that we would, as a result, praise you for from you and through you and to you are all things. In your name we pray. Amen.